I don't know if you've noticed, but meditation is a little bit of a buzzword these days. You know, there's, there's a lot of press about mindfulness and uh, even meditation retreats. And um, so it's always interesting to me what the mainstream says about it. And um, uh, a little while ago, I just Googled, you can do everything on Google. So I Googled, you know, articles on not just mindfulness meditation, but mindfulness meditation retreats like the one that you're on. And uh, so the titles of some of these articles that showed up are That Misery Called Meditation, (laughs) A Not-So-Mindful Retreat, Mindfulness Meditation, It May Be Essential, But Boy, It Isn't Easy, Eight Survival Tips for Your First Meditation Retreat, (laughs) and this one, Why Meditation Is My Personal Hell. Is that what we're here for? (laughs) And, you know, writers tend to over-dramatize, of course. But we actually very quickly see um, actually what Nikki alluded to in her beautiful uh, metta um, description that she did a whole month of metta and it wasn't always easy. The difficulties actually show up really quickly. You know, we have this incredible land, these buildings that are just so beautiful. We have retreat managers that take care of our needs. They go out and get things that we haven't, you know, we've forgotten or that have come to emerge that we need. The cooks support us. And yet it's still difficult. It's really interesting. And really beginning to look at how this mind works. Revealing things that we usually, again, take for granted. You know, bringing attention to things that we usually don't pay attention to, whether it's the breath, whether it's our ability to to walk in the world, ambulate, physically move, whether it's the the food that we intake whenever we need to, whenever we want to. We're really invited to look at how precious this life is. And even when the deepest sorrow comes up, even when the challenges come up, even when the difficulties come up, to get a sense that every life that is lived, not just ours, lives that full range of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. That when the difficulties come up, we can think that that is our entire experience. But that there is also the joy in our life. And that when the joy does come up, we don't attach to it, we don't crave for it, we don't try to make it permanent. Because inevitably we know that it will change. And this is the full range of our experience. This is the complexity and the, the 
the tender landscape that we walk into. Because usually what happens, and we'll talk about this a little further into the retreat, usually what happens is that as soon as something comes up in our life, if we don't like it, we push it away. If we do like it, we want more of it. And this constant buffeting back and forth is actually not the actual reality that is being lived. We're actually wanting the moment to be different. And if it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, if it's pretty in that neutral tone, we just don't pay attention. So this practice turns our attention to those details that as we turn our attention to those details and not be this reactive sense to it, not pushing it away, not wanting it to be different, not wanting more of it, we actually begin to live our life fully and not the thought of how it should be. Because in the buffeting back and forth, that's when thought becomes reality. That's, it's, you know, when we say thought becomes reality, it's not the content that becomes reality as in some practices of visualization. It's the actual thinking process that becomes our reality. And our thinking, the, the, the aspect of thinking in our lives is not our, the totality of our experience. I mean, if you look at the six sense doors, of which the mind is one of the six sense doors in Buddhist psychology, if you really consider that, the mind is only 17% of your experience. And yet our whole lives are defined by what we think. So really beginning to notice the details allows us to go to hold the thoughts and also go beyond them. It invites this intimacy, getting close to. It's the direct experience of the breath. You you get to know, it's not just a conceptual aspect of the breath or the walking or the movement. It's the texture, it's the it's the tenor, it's the vibration. The um, Pali word for mindfulness is um, sati, which is, um, it refers to uh, chitta, which is um, sometimes translated as mind. But in many Asian cultures, the word chitta, or the, the word that we translate as mind, is actually close, more closely translated as mind-heart. Before my father passed away, he was, he was an academic, so he's pretty you know, up in his head. But whenever he said, I think, his hand went here. Because that's, that's the, the cultural conditioning of this term. And so when, when, when I think of sati, I don't just think of mindfulness, which is the um, 
the Western Cartesian view. Descartes, I think, therefore I am. This, this, this chitta really invites us into a mind heartfulness, which includes, you know, that mind heartfulness includes those um, four foundations of mindfulness that, um, uh, that Nikki will talk about tomorrow night. So that mind-heartfulness is really also the theme of this week. The wings of wisdom and compassion that are one and the same, basically, that are interlinked. And, and you know, exploring the details of your relationship with mind-heartfulness or mindfulness or sati And is it true that this attention has this quality of love? Uh, You know, some of you have children, some of you uh, don't have children, but we've all been children. And I'm, you know, my own childhood experiences are coming up in a big way because I have three, you know, five to six-year-old grandchildren. And um, it's, it's really interesting that I love them, but unless I'm paying attention to them, they're not feeling it. You know, when I'm, when, when I'm distracted, when I'm doing something, um, and I'm not focused on them, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to, they're not going, they, they, they don't feel that, that energy from me. And what, was I- what is interesting is Oliver, who is the middle one, um, uh, you know, everybody tells him that I'm his grandpa Larry. This is through Stephen's family, so we're not, you know, related by blood. And um, and uh, and so um, Oliver, for the first time, th- uh, two weekends ago, um, when we got to their house, ran up and said, "Grandpa Larry." I have something to tell you. And it was the first time without a prompt that he called me that. And I can't tell you how much love I felt. That it was, you know, I thought that it was my job to love him. But the visceral sense of it being reflected back, this, pa- this paying attention being reflected back, you know, it sort of gave me a whole new sense of where the relationship could go. This paying attention is an aspect of love. Not in the sort of the idealistic, you know, sort of um, fairy tale way, but paying attention with our mindfulness and awareness including that experience in our life. And that's what this retreat is about. Opening our experience, opening our practice to paying attention to that which we have not usually done. And in that way, opening the heart. Just by allowing yourself to be exactly where you are, 
who you are in this moment, that acceptance is an aspect of love. It may not feel that way, you know, in the, in the saccharine sort of, you know, um, emotional contact. But you are actually giving yourself such a profound experience of love. Each time that you meet the moment without needing to judge it. And even if the judgment comes up, even if you're thinking you can't do this or you're not doing it right or everybody else is doing it except you or, you know, like when is the, when is, when are you going to be able to last through the entire 45 minutes? Even when the judgment comes up, can you not judge the judgment? And in that moment, you are reconditioning your entire experience. That quality of loving presence is is what dissolves the incessant stories that we have about ourselves, that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy, that we're, that we can't do, that all of the messages that our culture tells us. That worthiness, that acceptance is embedded in this practice. from a very wise woman named Margaret Cho. (laughs) If you are a woman, if you are a person of color, if you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you are a person of size, if you are a person with different abilities, if you are a person of intelligence, if you are a person with integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. And it's going to be really hard to find messages of self-love and support anywhere. It's all about you have to look a certain way or else you're worthless. You know, when you look in the mirror and you think, ugh, I'm so fat, I'm so old, I'm so ugly. Don't you know that is not your authentic self? That is billions upon billions of dollars of advertising, magazines, movies, billboards, all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself. So you will take your hard-earned money and spend it on some turnaround cream that doesn't turn around shit. (laughs) When you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want to go for. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to go for the... You will hesitate to report violence. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you're discriminated against because of your race, your sexuality, your size, your abilities, your gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us, to have (coughs) self-esteem is truly an act of revolution. That experience of worthiness, that experience of self-esteem is not attachment. 
it is it is fully fully allowing you to be who you are in this moment this worthiness that your life is so worthwhile and indispensable to the greater whole this this intimacy of getting close to your experience <clears throat> allows to us to move beyond sort of the simplistic conceptions of love and really feel its power. And we can begin to feel that if you've been involved in either your family relationships or your, your, um, uh, your primary relationships. How is it possible to love those individuals without loving their full range? Their joys and their sorrows, <clears throat> the ways that they that they support and um, and and nurture you, and the ways they irritate the shit out of you. Anyone who has been in a primary relationship has those ten thousand joys and ten thousand sorrows. There is no relationship; it mirrors so quickly. When. Stephen and I first got together, you know, those first disagreements, those first differences, those first arguments felt like the end of the world. It felt like the end of the relationship, like it's make or break. But over time, we got to realize, oh, this is just the difference coming up. Can we meet this? Can we hold this in our relationship? This is the compassionate presence and attention that we're invited to give ourselves. Living through the discomfort, living through the, um, the unease, even the pain. But this practice is incremental. It, you know, we don't try to uh, lift the heaviest weight in the beginning. But we build that capacity, we build that strength. And so as we sit, discomfort automatically comes up. And so is it possible to allow your attention to be with the itch, to be with that unpleasant sensation that we usually push away we scratch in order to make it go away, which is fine. But what's the experience of the itch on the other side of the itch? We'll never know until we sustain our awareness through it. And how many itches in the world do we scratch in order to make go away? And we don't experience the other side. The heat is another beautiful practice. You know, as the heat comes up, this is what Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who's one of the Thai uh, teachers of the last century, um, uses this metaphor. When people are out in the sun 
running around, they don't realize how hot the sun really is. If you really want to know how hot it is, which you, we can do in the next couple of days, you have to sit out in the middle of the field when the st sun is really strong for about five minutes. It's the same thing with pain and stress. If the mind goes running around without stopping, it doesn't really see the pain and stress. It has to be still if it wants to see clearly. How often when, you know, in our, our lived experience, our lives, when the discomfort or the itch or the, even the pain comes up, we just want to make it go away, even with good intentions. I was originally trained as a social worker and um, I unfortunately, you know, in, in my training, learned from my mistakes and so social workers, at least the way that I was trained, was part of our goal was to attend to problems, to create solutions, to, to be of benefit. And there were times in which I would come into a situation and with my best intentions to do whatever it was, I'd actually make things worse. And have we ever been in that situation that we've, we've gone to support or help and we've actually made things worse because we haven't had that pause. When a friend comes to you in distress, what's the first thing that they need? It's probably not to be fixed. It's really to be met. You know, your attention, your presence is actually probably of, of most benefit. That attention is this practice. And it can have global consequences. So, you know, this is an article that's sometimes trying to help makes things worse. And it describes in the Haiti earthquake in, in 2010, you know, in the rush to come and um, uh, provide relief, uh, there was a cholera epidemic that actually I think is still um, raging in that community. It's killed more than 8,000 people. And there is very strong evidence that it was the peacekeepers coming in that didn't isolate their sewage in their major water supply that actually caused the epidemic. So seeing with our awareness to discern what to do, what are those actions that are needed to cause less suffering in the world? before we react. Noticing, noticing in greater and greater detail. Noticing greater and greater detail your experience so that there is insight. Noticing the moments in between the sensations of your breath. The moments in between the inhale and the exhale. We begin to notice the moments between the so moments of sorrow so that we can actually have a larger space to hold it all. One of the, one of the when, when discomfort or pain, physical pain comes up, 
you know, the instruction, the invitation is to begin to go into it if it's possible, to, to really look at the parse through the details. It's, pain is such an overall, overarching word. What's the specific? What's the stinging, the, the, um, the pulling, the tension? Oh, there's some coolness. Oh, that sensation is neutral, actually. And those in-between moments actually are part of your experience. There's a, um, one of my favorite artists is a, is a Korean artist who works in Japan. And he had a retrospective at the Guggenheim a couple of years ago. His, his name is Lee Ufan. And uh, he talks about the resonant space in between events. So his canvases are as big as that wall and back. And there is a huge, there might be a, a huge stroke, let's say on one side of the canvas, a huge black stroke. And then on the other side of the canvas would be a huge, you know, um, stroke going uh, in another direction. And that's the canvas. And he talks about the tension between the two events. He says, if a bell were struck, the sound reverberates into the distance. Similarly, if a point filled with mental energy is painted on a canvas or a wall, it sends vibration into the surrounding unpainted space. This resonant space transcends words, leading people to silence and causing them to breathe infinity. What he's pointing to is that it's, you know, the event that we look at includes the totality. He writes this little poem. When I say I, does it include things around it? When I say I, doesn't it include unknown mountains and streams? He invites us to look at the intimacy of the, uh, these events, these particular events, to see the totality, to look at the details in greater and greater uh, um, attention. Thich Nhat Hanh has a different way of saying the exact same thing. He says, what are the elements of a flower that are the non-flower elements? So that might be the rain, that might be the sunshine, that might be the pollination of the uh, stamens and pistils in the flower itself. What are the non-human elements that make up our human lives? That's the totality. That's the, that's the, um, that's the invitation. What would climate justice look like if we had that practice of totality? Looking at the non-aspects of the aspect itself. And this is where Thich Nhat Hanh gets, you know, he sometimes says it so brilliantly. What, are, what elements of Buddhism are not Buddhist? 
because what he's pointing to is that is that the practice itself is not about a religion or it's not about devotion to a certain um, tradition. It's a deeply human journey that crosses all traditions. The wisdom is not the monopoly of any tradition. This totality is so important in social justice work. Amid the violence and the disparity and the pain in the world, amidst the seemingly incessant suffering, whether it's racism, whether it's the conflict that shows up in Ferguson or Florida or Charleston with Walter Scott, Baltimore with Freddie Gray, and then Charleston again with the massacre. Falling into the despair of, not this again, or this will never change. What are the non-elements of this despair? What are the moments in between the moments? So, um, so that's my practice these days, looking for those moments between the moments, trying to get space. And so um, I had to notice that uh, there was a story, and many of you may have seen it because it went very widely. Um, after... Ferguson, there was a protest in Portland. And at that protest, there was, you know, lineup of police and, and there was a, um, a young African-American boy who um, was standing in front of the uh, police brigade and um, uh, he was just sobbing because of what, you know, the event meant to him. But around his neck was this sign and it said, free hugs. And so I, I won't go into the details of the story, but um, so one of the officers went up to him and engaged in the conversation. And finally, after the conversation was over, uh, he said, can I have one of those hugs? And that's the photo that went viral. And so it didn't solve Ferguson, but it was a, a moment. So... Okay, that was a moment that, that was in between my moments of despair. And after Baltimore, um, there was a story of, again, a young African-American boy, and again, the riots, and again, the police brigade, and he's handing out bottles of water to the policeman. And I'm thinking to myself, do these guys know each other? Do, you know, did, did someone's mother read out the story to another? Uh, you know, and I, could f I can feel my mind go a little bit cynical. You know, is this, what, what's happening here? Is it coincidence? Is it connection? Or is it just a moment that I can hold to hold the larger picture. So I'm just going to play a little recording that 
um, uh, this is a, a, a news segment from after the Baltimore riots um, about an organization in Baltimore doing what you're doing. Let's see if Maybe we can turn up the volume a little bit. Behind the scenes that you feel like the cameras haven't shown. I mean, just the bringing together of all different types of people uh, to work in one common goal. Uh, before, I guess, this incident went down, Baltimore uh, is like a really segregated city. Um, and, you know, it's horrible that this chaos uh, that went down uh, the other day uh, had to happen to bring all these different communities together. But I think that, you know, from, you know, chaos, uh, something beautiful can come out of this. And, you know, we're seeing that through the beautiful citizens of Baltimore coming together from all demographics. So, you know, hopefully this will be a building block and we'll be able to continue to grow together as a one community in Baltimore. And, uh, Andres, tell us more about what it is that the, uh, the Holistic Life Foundation does and what you guys have planned coming up this weekend. Yeah, so um, for the past 13 years now, we've been doing work um, focused in Baltimore all throughout the nation, all throughout the world in regards to providing mindfulness, uh, meditation, and just self-regulation techniques for individuals, the community, for everyone, um, so they can man better manage themselves, be in the present moment. And uh, a large part of what we teach deals with love and compassion, spreading that love and compassion and building communities and, and creating trainers so that our goal is, is to take, you know, youth from the neighborhoods, teach them how to go out into their neighborhoods and spread these techniques so they can not only better themselves but better their, their communities and spread the love. So that's our goal this, this weekend, what we're going to do. It's on Saturday, um, May the 2nd. It's right in the neighborhood where a lot of uh, all the events on Monday took place. That's where our after-school program is. It's right next to it on Robert W. Coleman Elementary School. Right there in the little grassy area we're going to have. Uh, we've invited everyone, everyone from uh, you know all dynamics of Baltimore to come through. And we're just going to sit down. We're going to just spread some love and some peace through meditation. Um, not only to all of Baltimore and all of the people that, that in, in the general area, but the whole city and the whole world, You know, especially with what's going on with the fall. And how important is meditation at a time like this when when emotions are running so high? I mean, I think it's it's extremely important right now. You know, um, the aftermath is what's really gonna gonna hit these kids soon. You know, they're they're already talking about it in their schools and their programs about the impact that it made, and, and you can see their empathy and their compassion growing and saying, you know, this is my neighborhood, and I don't want it to be torn down. I don't I don't want it to fall apart. And, you know, already most of the individuals that take part of our practices, they are leaders in their groups. You know, they step forward and they're the ones that break up the fights. They're the ones that try to bring the peace and the calm. So I think this is, at this time, they're going to need it more than they've ever needed. It's kind of to, to go inward and to find that, that place of inner peace away from all of the atrocities that are going in their immediate vicinity, right out their windows, you know. So I think that the youth and everyone in, in, in the area are really going to, it would make a, a dramatic impact in their lives if they could start just taking a moment out of each day and being in that present moment and going within. I think it, it's, it's, words can't describe it, yeah. After. Words cannot describe it.
that is the moment in between the moments that hold the totality. The brother talks about the aftermath. The aftermath of, of Emmanuel. The, the forgiveness that poured out of the families in the, in the service, the, in the congregation. But then Middleton Brown, one of the sisters of one of the vi- victims, writes, I acknowledge I am very angry, but she taught me that we are the family that love built. There is no room for hating. And we can react to this with some doubt, like, like, are they really forgiving? Are they abs- are, are you sure? And I don't know if, you know, um, if the forgiveness is real or if this, if it's, um, it's actually happening. But what I see in the community is that they're, even if they're not completely there yet, they're inclining themselves towards that over and over again, supporting each other as a community to incline the mind and heart towards freedom. Is forgiveness enough? Of course not. Of course not. But it also is part of those in-between moments that helps us hold the whole. Otherwise, the despair becomes overwhelming. These moments in between moments is so important to create more space. To hold the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King writes, we must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. The both end. Because as much suffering as there is in the world, that's the first noble truth. Is that what we want to be conditioned by? Or do we want to be imprinted by the path towards freedom? It's really a choice point for us to make. And what is that reconditioning? It's the development of resiliency to suffering, resiliency to the first noble truth. And resiliency is part of the definition of recovering from trauma. As much as we can prepare for it, as much as we should do and need to do, we can't actually prepare for everything in life. So much of what happens is out of our control. And the ability for us to say, yes, I will try to be with this too. I can be aware of it so that I can know how to relieve this suffering. That yes 
is part of the resiliency. And even when the practice becomes difficult and challenging, the invitation is to practice on the practice. Can you pay attention with kindness to the practice itself? We have those blessings around loving kindness. And I have my own mantra around when the, when the practice becomes difficult. Can I be forgiving and loving in this moment? And if I can't be forgiving and loving in this moment, can I be kind? And if I can't be kind, can I be non-judgmental? And if I can't be non-judgmental, can I not cause harm? And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible? And even, so even when I go there, even when I'm imperfect, even when I fail in not causing harm, there is still this inclination towards freedom that helps hold the space for me. The, those moments in between those difficulties. It really points to this thing that we're alluding to now around continuity of practice. Noticing, you know, it seems mundane to notice the transition between sitting and walking or, you know, notice, the, um, uh, notice as you walk to the bathroom and do your stuff and take a shower. This continuity of practice is really exercising that capacity to be refined in your awareness, to notice in greater and greater detail. What is it that leads to freedom? And of course, we wander from the breath we lose the loving-kindness phrases. And sometimes the opposite comes up, you know, the resentment. Why do I have to do this? Or this person brings up you know, the opposite feeling than, than uh, what you're intending to generate. The awareness of when we're not kind, when we're not compassionate, when we're not aware, the awareness of that is the beginning of the practice. Because if we were not aware of being unkind, that's what would continue. We cannot change anything we're not aware of. That's the power of the practice. Because when we become aware of something, we have that choice point. So we change ourselves from the inside out. We change the world from this place of inside out. Sayadaw Upendita, who's one of um, the main teachers of this tradition, uh, in contemporary tradition, writes, practicing mindfulness 
means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. And I said, of course, resilience, kindness, awareness, that's not enough. We don't just stop there. This sacred tenderness of our, our spiritual path is not a passive experience. It's not just about intention or internal experience. Otherwise, it would be a one-fold path, you know. There's an eight-fold path to freedom. It's not a one-fold path. You know, there is that intention and understanding, but there is also that action, that livelihood, that speech, that mindfulness, concentration, and effort. It's how we act in the world to reduce suffering. At the first service after... Um, uh, at Mother Emmanuel this past Sunday, actually, Reverend Dr. Norval Goffs writes or says, if we have, some dif- we have some difficulties ahead, but the only way evil can triumph is for good folks to sit down and do nothing. If we are people of faith, we will join hands and begin to work together to forge a brand new partnership. Our faith calls us into action. The work of transformation is really difficult and hard in this world because that's the suffering of the first noble truth. So when the first noble truth arises, is that what we become? Is that what our hearts become? Hard and difficult. Or do we embody that path of freedom? During Pride Weekend this past weekend, Bayard Rustin was on my mind. You know, the great gay African-American activist who organized the 1963 March on Washington. In spite of the fact that he was subjected to enormous homophobia in the civil rights movement at that time. And he says... God does not require us to achieve any of the good tasks that humanity must pursue. What God requires of us is that we not stop trying. We can change our lives because we hate the way that we are. That we dislike our mistakes, that we can't stand our flaws or how we look, or we hate certain aspects of our personalities or patterns. Or we can change our lives because our lives are so precious to us that we are so worthy of this process of transformation to live into the potential of who we really are. That's two different experiences. We can work to change the world because we think the world should be different must be different, got to be different. We can't stand the harm that's being caused. 
hate the injustice. Or we can be motivated to change the world because we love it so dearly that it is brilliant in its capacity to hold the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, that we honor it by doing the work that is needed. Again, these are two different experiences. Awareness for each of us provides that choice point. Which path will lead to more suffering? And which path will lead to more freedom? Because it is possible. The Buddha said he would not teach that which is not possible. That freedom is possible. And that's what makes this journey so sacred and noble. So thank you for your attention. Let's sit for a moment. allowing the words to fall away, just feeling the body, the mind, the heart, and just allowing your experience to be exactly as it is. That is both the awareness and the loving-kindness practice, the wisdom and compassion that you have in this moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.